Welcome to New Jersey Tech Meetup, the podcast. Each episode, we bring you a huge amount of value from past keynotes at our events, fireside chats, and much, much more. Tune in to hear from entrepreneurs such as Gary Vaynerchuk, James Altucher, and your host, Aaron Price. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and we can't wait to share more episodes with you in the future. Uh, first, let me introduce our guest to you guys. I love that you're talking, but if you wouldn't mind sitting down, you can definitely do some shots later and chat more. That'd be great. So first, let me just introduce Allison. It's super loud in here, isn't it? Yeah. Um, she joined Business Insider in July 20, uh, 2008 as the sixth employee. She was a formerly the sales planner. She's now the deputy uh, editor overseeing Business Insider's technology, science, and entertainment sections. She also reports on technology and startups. She's the head of their conferences. Uh, she's appeared on ABC with Katie Couric, Al Jazeera, MSNBC, CB, CNBC, CNN, anything that starts with a C, CBC, what's CBC? Uh, Canadian. I don't know where that is. And has interviewed media personalities like Dr. Oz and Fred Wilson. She graduated from Syracuse's Newhouse School of Public Communications. How about a big round of applause and welcome to Allison Chantel. All right, so let's start with some of your own story. Is that on, by the way? I don't know if I, oh, here, sorry. Excuse me, it's not a technical All event. Right. Um, so first, where are you from originally? I'm from Northern Virginia. Nice. So a few minutes outside DC, Arlington. And, and uh, where do you reside today? Hoboken. How about that? It's the best, yeah. uh, best place to be. <laughs> that is a coincidence. I did not know that uh, when we were introduced, which is a cool coincidence. So, mm -hmm. um, so you, I want to start with a little bit on your story. You, what, what drew you to a relatively unknown uh, publication, sort of startup of its own? Uh, it was a bit of luck and... Uh, and following a smart person. So I was a junior going into my senior year at uh, Syracuse University. I interned for Condé Nast, um, the magazine maker behind Glamour and a bunch of those. And the executive director of my group joined Business Insider as the COO and president right when I was graduating. And I was trying to get great interview advice from her uh, as I was graduating, trying to get a job at Condé Nast. And she said, no, no, no. Don't go into print. That's foolish. All the print jobs are declining. Digital's on the rise. Come work with me. It's a startup. You know, we only have five people. We just raised a million dollars. But um, and at the time, I thought I wanted to do advertising and advertising sales. So she was like, "Come with me. It's a startup. You'll get to wear a lot of hats. Try a lot of everything. No college grad knows what they really want to do anyhow. So you'll figure it out. And uh, you can move within our startup if you really want to." So I followed. Uh, Julie Hansen, who's now stellar president and COO there, and she was just the smartest person I had met, and I knew if I followed her, I would probably be doing pretty well, and luckily, um, you know, she led me to a great place. How did your, your parents feel about this decision? They didn't really like it, actually. They were a little afraid for me, I think, because uh, you know, startups weren't super sexy then. Uh, all my friends were graduating, going to you know, big banks or big well-known companies, and I certainly never thought I would be at an unknown place um, that I'd never heard of and that didn't even exist when I was in school a few months prior. Um, and Business Insider was started by a man named Henry Blodgett, uh, who was amazing, but he had a... a a different sort of past in which he was kicked out of the securities industry um, for a big kerfuffle. So uh, they knew the name Henry Blodgett from the early 2000s and had kind of red flags go up. And I said, Mom, you know, just let me do this. 
it's a great job. I really like this woman, Julie. I think I'm going to learn a lot. Just trust me. And um, Henry is a fantastic CEO and boss. Couldn't ask for a better one. And Julie has been an amazing mentor as well. So, uh, and how many people are you now? 350. Wow. Pretty yeah. awesome. Yeah. And do you think that this is something that you will, you know, the, the media landscape is changing rapidly. Um, it's noisier. There's a lot of startups and one established companies trying to become more innovative. Do you think this is, this has long-term legs? Where do, you, where do you think that that business insider and the media industry in general is headed? So the media industry is in a kind of a crazy place right now. Um, the startup world has been exploding with media companies. It used to be a very unsexy kind of business to start because it's primarily advertising revenue and you know advertising rates aren't so great anymore. Um, but in the last few years, there's been kind of renewed faith in media. People are starting to see the model maybe isn't so bad. Um, companies like Business Insider, BuzzFeed, Fox, Vice. Um, there's a few you know, billion-dollar unicorn startups in the space now who've raised tens of millions of dollars. And um, there's definitely a renewed energy there. However, it's also incredibly hard. And I think you're also starting to see a lot of um, layoffs at the bigger print brands. You're starting to see media consolidation with the smaller startups um, that just haven't been able to figure out how to monetize and or monetize well with the ad rates plummeting. Um, so it's a really crazy time. But I think there's no better place that I could possibly be than a place like Business Insider because it's digital first. It's still relatively lean compared to like the New York Times or Wall Street Journal. Um, and we just get it. And we're young. And so we're still young and scrappy and innovative. And we still haven't made it yet. So we're still hungry. So I think it's a great place. What's the general makeup of those 300 and I forget you said 350. What's, how many journalists? How many technology people? There, uh, it's primarily, it's journalist heavy, so I'd say uh, more than half of us are in edit, um, and then, you know, probably a third in business and a third in tech. So how do you see companies like Vox and Quartz and Mike and a bunch of others you told me about I hadn't heard of that, um... I guess that would be a quarter and a quarter, sorry. <laughs> no, we don't test on the math here. <laughs> I'm a writer, damn it. <laughs> um... So how do you see the, the some of the much more recent super popular companies um, fitting in this landscape? Do you think that they're here to stay? Do you think that they're around curated discovery? Where do you think they are in uh, in the ecosystem? The media startups? Yeah, Quartz, Mike, those kinds of things. Yeah, um, so yeah, there's definitely a tier of them. Mike.com, Bustle, they've raised a good chunk of cash. Um, the founders seem to be really smart and savvy, and they get uh, the digital business very well. So I think... Uh, they're in a good spot. Uh, I think they're in a, b a better position than um, if you if you look at some of the trade publications. They're having a tough time. Um, Recode is probably one of the best, and it just got snatched up to go to Fox because they were like, you know what? Our, we're amazing, and we get amazing scoops. However, our traffic is still only three million readers, and Fox is a huge, huge ship. We should just get on board. So I think you know, you're going to see more of that. I think. The mics and the bustles are in a good place, um, but still to be determined. And even you know, Business Insider, we're still to be determined. I think we're going to do great. But uh, you know, I never thought when I joined seven years ago that it would be, uh, you know, 200 million plus company. But right now it is. Yeah. Hope we got some equity in the process. A little uh, bit. <laughs> you don't have to answer that one. So no, no, they're good with stock <laughs> options, and I, I'm definitely annoying about it. So. Good. Um, so we spent a lot of time on this stage talking about how to get 
build relationships and get introductions to investors. And I think uh, quality press can be equally, if not more so important. So what are ways that startups can uh, can earn press you know, and get in touch with people like you to, to have a relevant story? Well, I think um, the first thing to think about is to be really strategic because the tendency is you, know, you want to get your name in a newspaper or on a blog and you want to have something, a link you can send around to your parents and your friends and it feels like validation, um, but sometimes it can be more harmful for your startup than it can be good. Because um, if you're doing it for egotistical reasons, that's not usually, that's the red flag right there. So I would say you want to be strategic about where you're going. If you're doing it because you want to attract investors and you know, maybe go to a tech crunch or a trade tech blog, um, if you want to get advertising clients, maybe go to an ad age or something like that. Uh, if you want to just create awareness, Business Insider is a great place. Uh, we have 80 million readers, so uh, it can help put some startups on the map. But you really have to be strategic about why you want the press and smart about it as well. Because often, you know, so many startups end up pivoting, and then you could just look foolish because you were pitching this whole thing in the press that didn't end up working out six months later. You're alerting competitors about it. Um, so there's a whole, a whole slew of reasons that maybe press isn't the best thing. Um, so that would be my first tip. And then if you are like, no, 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 I definitely want press. How do I get it? I think like most things in life, a lot of it is who you know and referrals. So I think a referral can go a long way. Any and you can find, um, whether it's you know shared contact from somewhere along the way. But I just would try and scramble to find a connection to the reporter that you want. And then study the reporter, know what they've written recently, and know what might be of interest. So do you ignore uh, cold emails? <laughs> uh, I, I am a pretty bad mass deleter. I, it's, uh, I could be better about it for sure. Uh, sometimes, you know, we just get so many emails. And what does so many mean? How many a day are cold? Um, I would say hundreds. There's a lot. Um, and, you know, you can tell pretty quickly from a subject line and things if someone has, they're just sending out a mass pitch to a bunch of reporters or, if they, you know, if they have no idea who they're pitching but just feel like they need to be pitching or just don't really know what you cover. So those are pretty easy to send straight to trash. And, I, you know, that's bad. But if someone really wants to, they'll circle back. I know. People, it's good to be persistent. So if you circle back, maybe I'll see it the second time. But it's usually a referral basis is the way to flag it. Yeah. You can tell pretty quick. And are your best referrals investors? They're great, yeah. Um, investors see things on you know every coast, so that helps a lot. You do, uh, it's harder to find, obviously, the bootstrapped ones that maybe the investors don't know about. Um, and so you kind of have to, the entrepreneur community is pretty good, though. I mean, founders are also great referrers as well. Those who you already trust. Yes. So if someone has bootstrapped something, like your husband, mm -hmm. and he wants to get press, Maybe he wasn't your husband. How might he approach someone like you to make that happen? Because if maybe he doesn't have a trusted source, or he's been heads down for a year building his product and building some, you know, building the business and not coming to things like this, which tends to happen, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I would say uh, you should um, know what's compelling about your startup. So it's not, and you know, a Business Insider, we actually don't really think that fundraisers are really that exciting. Uh, we prefer to, and we will cover them if there's something truly exciting. Like we, we covered today a uh, jet, uh, Uber for Jets company raised $20 million from Jay-Z and the Saudi royal family. So that was like, oh, our readers might care about that. But that's unusual. Um, chances are, you know, we'll leave that for another site. And we would just rather see, you know, crazy growth numbers. If you're already generating good revenue, we'd love to hear about that. Um, numbers really stand out to people, to people, whether they're stats or growth or whatever. Um, 
you should just try and figure out what the most exciting thing to the most amount of people is about your company. Because um, we always have to put readers first. Yeah. So what if you're pre-launch? Um, so I could see a scenario where you're pre-launch, like you're a Periscope, and you get tons of coverage because you have a really phenomenal backing. Um, so you're getting a lot of press, which it, you know, in theory is raising actually the value of that company, versus someone who uh, maybe hasn't raised a lot of capital but has a similar compelling product but doesn't have the numbers yet to show. Would you give them attention? Or how might they get attention? Yeah, I think, um, well, Periscope was an interesting example because I think Meerkat, uh, I guess they were a pivot from something else and they had some funding, but they were kind of the less funded one but had more of the attention and it wasn't really until everybody realized that Twitter had bought Periscope, that the light started shining on Periscope. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, oh, sorry, your question was... How to... <laughs> <laughs> how um, a company that's been under the radar, a company that doesn't have as much of... You're right, it wasn't really until Twitter, so it's, a, it's a, not the best example. But a company that's, that's sort of flown under the radar in particular, you, know, you mentioned it's great stats and numbers can be very compelling, mm -hmm. but if you don't have them yet, if you're about to launch, is there an angle? Should people just wait? Is it the wrong time? I think I would argue that it's in most cases the wrong time. Like I would just focus, you have so much to focus on when you're launching. Uh, press can just be such a distraction. And then, you know, in the off chance that the press just really takes to you, it can create a false sense of traction. Like a lot of startups have gone through that um, and they end up being fads. So there's a company that actually just shut down today called Frontback. And um, Frontback was like this hot company. Uh, Jack Dorsey was tweeting about using it. Twitter actually offered to buy them for tens of millions of dollars, but instead they raised $4 million and said, no, we're gonna do it alone. And then all their traction kind of died. And today they shut down. Um, so you see those things that look um, like they have traction, but sometimes they're just inflated by press and it can be distracting from the real metrics. And I would just say maybe it's better to just stay heads down in most cases and try and really get real traction. And it, the coolest thing is when nobody knows about you and you're a sleeper hit. I think those are the coolest stories to tell. Doesn't press help you become a sleeper hit? No, only once you become a hit. <laughs> <laughs> it's the awakening part. Yeah. Um, so what about uh, using a PR agency versus reaching out to you directly? Hmm. Uh, there are a few great PR agencies and some people who really know what they're doing, but I think a personal touch goes a long way. So I know CEOs and founders have a ton on their plates during the startup early days, but it really goes a long way when it comes from a founder. There's no one more passionate to tell the story. Um, you know, you can relay it to someone else, but they just won't have the same enthusiasm or vision that you will. Um, so I really, uh, I, you, and you feed off a founder's energy. So I really like the founder relationships uh, and I would always prefer that any day. And then when people, let's say someone is ready for some press, should they blast every reporter they can get there, even if they have common connections to, should they go for some kind of an exclusive? What do you think the best approach is once you have something that might be press ready? Uh, I think you definitely need to be a little bit selfish in that you have to do what's best for your startup. And we understand that as reporters. That, yeah, of course, I would love an exclusive on everything, but you know, I get that it's your startup. It's live or die type situation. You have to take care of yourself. Um, if you have a relationship with me, I would appreciate a heads up or just being briefed on it, and then we can decide if it's something we want to cover or not. But I would just say just you know, treat people respectfully um, in terms of their time, you know, maybe don't blind uh, message everybody you can think of, um, and in terms of how you treat them in the process. Because you know, reporters, 
uh, it might seem like we're hard to get to, but there is a point in the relationship where things switch and you're a big, awesome founder and you don't have the time of day for us. So like, it's, you know, treat us the way you would want to be treated and likewise. Um, what about the, um, when, when, if someone does have something where they're looking for, if, when are you looking for an exclusive and when are you willing to let something like that go? Or is uh, it just a bonus? You kind of, I mean, you kind of know this. So, I mean, for us, I think it different. It differs by outlet. For Business Insider, like I was saying earlier, we tend to think funding isn't the most interesting thing you could tell normally. The one of the only ways we will cover it uh, is if you give us the exclusive, because otherwise we'll just leave it for someone else. We don't want, you know, we know a bunch of other blogs are probably going to write about it. We don't need to be the fifth. Um, we'll either be the first and the only, or we'll find a really compelling, interesting angle. Um, but. Uh, otherwise, you could just skip us. Did you say a bunch of other blogs, meaning you think of Business Center as a blog, or you think bloggers just tend to pick those no, things up? No, I guess a blog is the wrong word. I don't think of BI as a blog. You know, we have 80 million readers. It would be a pretty big blog. Um, uh, but no, I, I guess I shouldn't say blog. You trade publications. Sure. It's probably a better word. Got it. Um, so around uh, around funding, right? There are I, I know a lot of founders who think it's really hot shit to, to show up in TechCrunch with a funding round. Um, you know, you live in this world pretty intensely, you know, personally and professionally. What are your views on uh, the funding uh, environment and if companies, you know, at what stage do you think it's appropriate for companies to get funding and to then publicize? You know, Jet is a great example in our backdrop here with enormous amounts of funding. Yeah, I actually, I kind of yelled at the founder of Jet because I was like, what are you doing? He raised, he raised the money, the $225 million in two batches. And, you know, he's a very accomplished entrepreneur. He founded Quidzy, which sold for hundreds of millions of dollars to Amazon. He knows what he's doing. I, I probably have no place to yell at him. But I was like, why are you raising this much money pre-launch? Why don't you go out and prove yourself first? Like, we've seen this happen so many times where companies raise all this money, like a color situation, yeah. raise $40 million and then flop before they even get out the door. Um, you know, Sean Parker's company that like brief video chat roulette clone, same thing. Yeah. Uh, it's just kind of a scary proposition. We have too much cash to know what to do with. So, what did he say to you about that? Or did he not? I mean, I, he, he kind of spun it as, well, we're being less selfish now because we're not proven yet. So the terms are worse than they would be, you know, if we were proven and successful and we needed this money later. So technically we're being like more selfless by raising all this money up front. That's but, interesting because in this very <laughs> chair, he told us it was opportunistic because the market's really hot and he wanted more money. Well, that's part of it too, I think. So I think it's all of it. I mean, there are definitely founders now. Like I, I think Slack was a good example where he's like, I don't, know, I don't need to raise, but if you give me my billion dollar value, then sure, um, I want to be a unicorn, right. um, which sounds cool now, but we'll see if they can keep raising at that high valuation later. So, okay, so getting back to uh, when companies should raise and when companies should announce a big raise, what what are your thoughts on, you know, all the talk of the bubbles, a very common word, unicorn, people like talking about unicorns and bubbles. What are, you, what are your thoughts on where we are as a, as a startup ecosystem? Uh, I, I mean, I think things are definitely frothy. It wouldn't be hard, too hard to find investors who are talking about it and saying people are dancing or stepping away from the dance floor a little bit. Um, and I think that's why you see so many VCs who are well-respected saying, you know, we're in a bubble, which is something you haven't really heard them say before this year. They're trying to make sure that people don't get a little bit too crazy this time. Um, so I think things are a little bit inflated. Uh, I couldn't predict if we're at the top or something, but uh, I don't know. I think it's a great time to fundraise, I guess, if you want that. But for really early stage companies, you really should think about if that's what you want and need. Um, 
because you obviously want to do it with the most favorable terms. So if you can find some way to get traction without holding your hand out for money, I would probably do that. Yeah. What are some mistakes that you see people make um, on in, in pitching? You know, we talked about relationship building. Once people actually have your attention, what are some common mistakes people make when talking about their story? Uh, I mean, I think most people... Uh, the biggest mistake would just be they don't know what the most interesting part about them or their company is. And in the early days, a lot of it is the, the human interest story. And people always want to root for an underdog. They want someone to succeed. Um, they want to know uh, how you've gotten to where you are, how maybe they could do it too. It's all very, entrepreneurship is all very aspirational and inspirational. You want uh, I think everybody wants to follow a dream and have it come true. And so that's kind of the promise of a startup. And uh, that's often the most interesting bit of it. So, you know, we'll say, these kids left Goldman Sachs to start their own company. They gave up their six-figure salaries, and they're, like, throwing it all into this idea. And people love that. That's the most interesting part. Got it. Um, how do people who maybe have a less obvious story find their story? Uh, I mean, I think you just need to think about what people would want to read. Um, you know, as reporters, we're just trying to do service to our readers, and we're trying to give them something interesting. Um, and so you have to just be genuinely honest with yourself about what's a story that, you know, my friends would be excited to read, even if they're not super into the tech world. Or that, you know, when I'm writing a story for Business Insider, I think, you know, what would my parents want to read about, even though, you know, they're not on Facebook, or right? what would I, my friends who work in finance but don't really have an interest in startups, what would they read in the startup world? How could I spin it for them? Um, so just thinking with the widest audience imaginable. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm bouncing around topics here a little bit because okay. I'm forgetting questions and sections, <laughs> but I want to hit some of these things. So sure. uh, how has being married to an entrepreneur affected uh, your views on entrepreneurship and then maybe how you write about it? I think it's been really good for me, actually. I get to live a little bit vicariously through him. Um, I, you know, I have seen the struggles uh, and the emotional roller coaster more um, upfront. I think, you know, there's no amount of preparation you can have going into a startup. You just kind of need to do it. And I don't even know what it's like because I'm not the one doing it. But I think I'm as close as I can be to it being the wife. You know, you hear all about it. It was in our apartment for two years before it was in an office. And uh, it's just, I think it's given me a lot of perspective. And there's also um, problems that people don't talk about openly to the press and that don't get written about in the press as a result um, because they're very personal. Um, so you, you learn more about just a lot of the thought process um, in terms of, you know, I've learned more about fundraising versus boot, bootstrapping and you know potential exit opportunities and things like that on a much closer level than anyone would honestly tell me if I didn't have it in my own home. What about the strain on the on the family, you know, it, it, at home? Is that opened your eyes in any way? Is, maybe that hasn't happened, but I know you know I, I could say personally that's definitely an issue. It, it's it's a, it's a yeah, challenge. it's stressful. I think, um, but I think. Uh, I can't imagine, I, we don't have kids, but I feel like that would be so easy after a startup. Like what gets harder than having a startup that you have to deal with, um, you know, it's so stressful and emotional and um, it, <laughs> yeah, babies are startups is what I hear. Um, so yeah, no, I think it, if you can survive a startup together, I really think that you're pretty in, in pretty good shape. And so when Matt and I, when he was doing his startup, uh, we were two years into dating. I'm glad we had those two years as like a normal couple without a startup thrown into the mix. Um, and I think we both were more optimistic about how 
easy startups are going into it and quickly learned that was not the case, especially because he's bootstrapped the whole thing, um, which adds a whole other level of stress. You know, you watch your bank account drown and I was the sugar mama, which I'm totally okay with. Um, but, you know, it's, it's stressful on a relationship. And, um, <laughs> and you know, we worked through it. And I think we learned how to fight together and overcome stuff together. And it put a lot of pressure on a two-year relationship, but we came out married. So that was good. That it's three years later. So. Yeah. Um, what, uh, oh, where would I go? Oh, so what was your favorite story? Someone, I, I also uh, asked for questions from the crowd ahead of time, and uh, someone asked what your favorite story was to write and why. Hmm. Um, hmm. I think probably there's a couple. I, I like the longer form ones that I've done. They take a lot more energy, a lot more time, but they're really rewarding when they're done. And I think one of my favorites is the first one I ever wrote. Uh, it was about an entrepreneur named Jody Sherman, and he had a really tragic story. He had a startup that was really hard to get off the ground, but he was such a, uh, he was really personable and had a lot of great connections, and he was able to raise $10 million for this e-commerce company. And then um, he ended up committing suicide, and um, you know, a, Two weeks after he committed suicide and he had raised a bunch of money, the company went bankrupt and shut its doors. And so there was a big question around everything. You know, Jody seemed like this happy-go-lucky guy. Why would he kill himself? Which nobody can really answer. Um, and then also, where did all the money go? And why did the company shut down? So it's this kind of big mystery. Um, and it was a lot to tackle. And I was pretty overwhelmed by it. And I felt really weird reporting about it because no one wants to ask their friend, you know, or ask someone who is a friend of Jody, you know, what happened to your friend? Like, tell me all these memories you have of him. It's a really uh, horrible subject. Um, and so at first when I started reporting it, and the reason I did is because um, like, you know, depression and suicide come up a lot in the startup world, unfortunately, because it is so stressful. Um, so I, I started asking his friends, you know, tell me what you know about Jody. I never got the chance to meet him. I want to learn more. And at first they were like, why, why are you reporting this? This seems kind of tasteless. And then they realized they did have a lot of questions and that I could help them find all the answers um, or some of the answers, not all of them. And so slowly but surely they started opening up um, and I ended up getting, you know, a dozen or more people to tell me their Jody stories, and I ended up piecing together, you know, what kind of the final months of the company looked like financially and and everything else, and um, a little bit more about Jody's final months. So that was really powerful, really impactful. I think it resonated in the community, um, and then every other <laughs> reported piece seemed a lot easier after that. What did his family? How, were they, how did they receive that piece? Um, I think. Uh, I think it, as well as they could. Uh, I didn't speak to his wife. I spoke to a family friend on behalf of his wife because obviously it's just too hard. Yeah. Um, but they helped me as much as they could. And they were, they weren't annoyed at you for exposing the story. Um, no, I think because if you tell the truth in a respectful way, they'll. They have to. They they understand it more, um, and I was trying to do a really diligent, careful job. This was not just a quick um, post on the site. You know, this is something yeah. I spent months reporting and really cared about deeply. So, so you're bringing up a really interesting um, hot button issue around depression and suicide in the startup community. 
sometimes, you know, there was a condition I think someone named when you scroll through your Instagram feeds uh, or social feeds, but say Instagram, um, how it seems like everyone's life might be better than yours because of the way that the imagery shows up. And I, I think there's a documented psychological issue with this. And I, I find that sometimes when you scroll through the media feeds, it's a similar experience. Like everybody and their brother or sister has raised money or selling a company or living on Uber jets. Um, do you think that the media contributes to some of that factor or is just reporting on the natural course of, of action that happens with people who are high risk takers to begin with? Yeah, no, I think the media definitely uh, dictates the tone and not always for the best. You know, I think that's why it seems like it's such an accomplishment to raise a round of funding and it can be. It can be your lifeline to your startup, but there's plenty of other ways to do it. Um, you know, one story that was fun to celebrate was the Plenty of Fish guy I just sold his company for, what, 570 Five million, and he gets to keep every penny minus what he gives to taxes because he owned a hundred percent of that business, which is crazy but awesome. Um, yes. So that's like bootstrapping on a whole other level. Yeah. Um, so those stories are they are cool too, but they're rarely celebrated because they're harder to find. And you know, maybe some of it is you know, maybe reporters take the easy way out too often, and maybe they just don't know that they're like maybe people aren't as passionate about the startup community as they should be to be asking the right questions. It's a lot. Well, when you guys sit around to try to pick topics to go after, how much is it news and journalistically driven versus sensationalized? Well, I mean, I, I don't think we try to sensationalize. <laughs> but I well, mean, you know that you have to drive interest, right? I mean, yeah. that's, that's the driving factor. People are going to care. So maybe you don't look at it as sens sensationalizing it, but making it marketable. Yeah, I mean, I think we we always want to find something that's interesting to readers. Um, so we always try and write, obviously, what's true and what readers will care about. And so the readers do dictate what we write, for sure. You know, if they like to read certain kinds of stories about Apple, we're going to cover Apple extensively. Um, you know, we, we do try and do that, but we also try and educate uh, people. But, um, you know, well, there it's must definitely be a, line a balance. There. I mean, there, you know, people crave... Um, uh, I forget, I'm losing the term, but, you know, celebrity gossip kind of news. I'm assuming that it's at some point you're not interested in reporting some of these things, or is that not the case? Yeah, no, no, there's definitely stuff that we don't touch and yeah. stuff that we don't report. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a line between, you know, we're business insiders, so there's a tie to that. You have to get, maintain that business integrity. Um, but we definitely try and always still be entertaining. And I think there's a way to do both. Like without going too far to the one side or the other. Have there been stories where you think a Business Insider or maybe some of your you know friends from the, from different publications have crossed the line? Uh, well, I think there's the big debate right now about Gawker. Um, Gawker does amazing reporting, and they've got a heck of a team. Uh, there is the hotly debated article they just published about the CFO, CFO of Condé Nast and uh, rendezvous he tried to schedule with a porn star. And a lot of people felt like Gawker shouldn't have exposed that. This is a guy that's not very famous. Uh, why are you putting this guy in public, a place to be publicly humiliated? His family life is probably ruined now. I mean, he should, probably shouldn't have been doing that, but his wife, I'm sure, is very upset with him. Um, and so Gawker ended up removing the post, and you know, there was a big controversy. So would I have published that? No. Um, Gawker is a whole different outlet. Uh, but I think even Nick Denton thought that they crossed the line there. Yeah. Um. By the way, in a minute or two, we're going to open up to some questions, so uh, start thinking of some if you're interested. What uh, Another user-submitted question was, what's more important for a B2B startup, PR or marketing? I think based on our conversation, I have a sense of what you might say, but what do you think? Uh, I mean, I would say marketing, I yeah. think. I mean, it, they kind of go hand in hand. 
I mean, yeah. PR is marketing and, and likewise. Um, but yeah, I would, I would focus on user growth and, and things like that as opposed to uh, trying to get your name out there, I do, guess. Do you see a difference in the, with B2C uh, products or services or do you think in general get some traction then worry about the press? I, I mean, it, it definitely depends on your situation and what your goals are. But I mean, I would say, uh, I mean, the best candidates, I guess, for early press are consumer apps. Um, but it really, it's such a situational thing. You just really have to decide what's right for you. What if there's someone maybe in the audience here who thinks they do have that, you know, they were homeless three weeks ago and now are about to launch an app in the app store, but have no investors, no traction. Do you find that those kinds of human interest stories interesting? Yeah, those are great. I, I mean, I, I would feel awful that he was homeless, but I, I would be curious to hear about it. Um, I'm sure you sure. those are great stories, yeah. but not great yeah. situations right. necessarily. Right, yeah, no, I mean, and we've covered all sorts of things. There was actually a, uh, a guy that was trying to teach a homeless man how to code and got his app in the app store, and that was a great human interest story that got picked up by tons and tons of outlets. Um, you know, everybody just wants to, they want to hear something interesting and different. Yeah. Um, what do you think we can learn from, from Donald Trump and his press efforts? Oh, God. I mean, he's like the ultimate troll. He really has no filter and says crazy things. Uh, do you think yeah, that he does this for the press? Like, do you think this is all big Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure it's an act. Yeah. You know, I think he just likes to cause uh, a ruckus. Well, what I think there's parallels to be learned from the startups, right? Like, if people said ridiculous things, which yeah. some founders do, Yes. Um, would you do you cover those kinds of things? Oh yeah, those get covered and not in the best way. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think they say you know all press is good press. That's not true. You can definitely create a situation that's a lot harder for you and your team moving forward. And I've seen investors, our investors pull out of deals because of silly, ridiculous, terrible things that the founders say. So it you have to realize it is more than just about you. Yeah. So some questions from the audience. We had a lot of interest earlier, but now it's gone quiet. We could keep talking. It's cool with me. Nothing? Really? Yes. I might have more, one, one more question today, but right now, uh, so when you talk to like a founder, and I think I've, I've, written, I mean, I've, I've read hundreds of your stories, but like someone who's the founder of fab.com, then they, they pivot, then it goes the other way, and then you come back and you reach out to them again, and you know, the co-founders leave, and, and what, how do you approach them? And when they give you the Heisman, like, hey, we don't want to talk to you, but you were there approaching how, hey, before we even started, we have 100,000 uh, users ready to go before we even launch on our first day. So how do you reapproach them and when they're now they're not so ready to talk? Um, yeah, so, I mean, Fab was a crazy story. It was a fun one to report. Uh, that one, I had been following the company for years, so I had been that rah-rah person, like, oh my god, look at Fab's numbers, they're exploding, and then I realized, oh no, I have to write the story of them failing, this is crazy. Uh, and so that gave me a lot of context to work with. Um, it's easier to get a company um, to, to um, at least hear you out when you know more information. So uh, the reporting process that's often easiest on a hard situation like that where a company might not want to talk to you is you gather as much information as you can before the company finds out. And then you come to the company and you say, this is everything I know. Let's have a conversation. And then it's a much more powerful way to move forward. Anybody else? Yeah. I'm a founder and I man the company block and I just put stuff out there that I'm thinking about, stuff that's relevant to me, stuff that's relevant to 
company, and I'm pretty sure nobody reads it. And Google <laughs> Analytics has confirmed that. One of things where I know I have I have no direct ROI that I can measure from having a blog, but every once in a while there's something that catches somebody and they come back to me. And what I don't know is what as a founder what the strategy should be for the company blog. Should I be writing for other founders? Uh, Users, like, what is the best way? Should I be trying to write something that I think will catch your attention? Like, what is the what is the best strategy for a founder for a better personal blog? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it comes back to what your company does and what you what you need out of what why you're writing the blog press of uh, the blog announcements and where you want it to go. So, I think did you have the data company? Yeah, so I mean, maybe you could put together some interesting, you know, analysis reports and stuff, and uh, pull together some interesting insights, and then. If you wanted to take it further, you know, you could pitch it to a couple of different outlets with an angle that they might take, and that could get your blog a, a good boost. Um, or else, yeah, I mean, it's it's really it just comes down to knowing who your audience is and and writing for them. And if you don't have an audience, maybe you go out and find it initially um, through content syndication deals. You know, like we take contributor content all the time. So if there was something relevant, um, and you're the expert on it, uh, you're the data man. So you know, position yourself that way. And you know, Forbes takes tons of contributors. There's a lot of outlets that uh, would welcome an uh, expert. If people were interested in in becoming a BI uh, contributing uh, author, how do they do that? Uh, so we have a whole contributors team. There's an editor in charge of that that I could put anyone in touch with. And um, each vertical tends to have their own, uh, and by vertical I mean like tech, science, entertainment. They tend to have their own person working on uh, contributor deals as well. So we have someone on tech specifically, and some of the other other verticals have editors as well. So it's really just matching up with that person. But if it's a smart piece of content, um, we take tons of Medium posts. We take stuff from LinkedIn. Um, wherever uh, we find it that's interesting that we think would benefit readers. If someone's already published it on Medium or LinkedIn, but you think it's relevant, you'll still republish it? Yeah, I mean, with permission. We'll say, hey, we think this post is awesome. Would you mind if we put it under your byline with a link to your website and, and show it to our readers? And occasionally they say yes. So my point there being people shouldn't hesitate to pu publish, you know, blog in other ways yeah. first to yeah. get some attention. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people would think that's fine. You know, some contributors, I think, you know, TechCrunch has contributors right on weekends. I think they give you know, the investor a topic or something, and then they have to publish there first. Uh, for us, no, you can publish on your blog first, and then we would take it if it was great. Cool. There was a question over there. Um, there was another company I did a, a deep dive on that came out with a lot of promise. It was this company, Clinkle. It raised, um, it was a Stanford guy who's really young, he's 22, raised the largest seed round in Silicon Valley history. Um, and it was $30 million at the time, which it probably is not the case anymore, but I think that was two years ago. And uh, when he was his PR people were pitching it as like, this is a wonder kid. He's like the next Mark Zuckerberg. He just raised all this money, but he's not going to tell you what his idea is because he's not ready to launch it. And that was like, a, oh no, <laughs> oh no, this is this could be bad. And uh, it ended up, you know, I think the company still hasn't really launched. It's had a ton of uh, turnover and things like that. And so, you know, it had all this kind of oomph behind it at the launch announcement because it had raised all this money from Andreessen and Horowitz and all these famed investors. And then, you know, two years later, still no product. And then I had to write a what the heck just happened here piece, which they're, they're fun, but a little bit tragic. Um, so that was probably the other surprise. In the back, yeah, Frank? 
publications always have a very strong relationship with their general counsel uh, for fear of libel. Does online media have a maybe a different standard because you can retract or edit any content almost immediately? Uh, no, I mean, we, we definitely would still be liable for whatever we publish, so we need to be very careful about that. Um, and so we definitely have lawyers, uh, editing structure, things like that to be as, as careful as possible from the get-go, because even if we update later, I mean, it's definitely easier for us to uh, update a post if we need to, but you're still on the line. You know, web browsers can search back and see what you did, so... Yeah. I want to, you mentioned that uh, Nick Denton from Gawker retracted. I, now, do you really honestly believe, I feel like his whole explanation was completely disingenuous as evidenced by the the top people on his staff leaving who complete, probably felt completely sold out because of what God, where Gawker has been before and for that, him all of a sudden to come out with his hat in hand. I mean, do you really believe that that's true and genuine? I think that Denton has changed his opinion of the site he wants Gawker to be quite a bit since founding it. Um, I think they have always had the expose everything mentality, but I think, I do think that Denton, for a number of reasons, you know, one, probably because it's causing their business harm. You know, they're losing advertising deals because of the story that was written. Brands are afraid that they could just get slammed at any moment by Gawker and the editorial staff won't care, which is like there should be separation between church and state, but at the same time, it's also a business. Um, and as he said, there's a, uh, what did he say? It's, it's like a tax on Gawker if you advertise there um, because you don't know what they're going to do. But I also think that Denton has gotten uh, a little bit warmer in recent years. He just got married. I think he's like coming from a, a little bit of a less defensive position in recent years. So I do think he's gotten a little bit softer. And uh, I think it's nice to see. Yep, last one here. Ah, hmm. uh, the most clever way. Mm, there, uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, there. I've definitely been approached at events. One guy had like my face printed on a chocolate bar, and I wasn't sure if I should eat the chocolate or and not. That's not the most creative way. <laughs> no, I think that, you have that to think about there. it. I definitely wrote about it and was like, I don't know how I feel about this, but here I am writing about it. Um, and so, yeah, I guess it creepily worked. Um, but that's the one that comes to mind. So. Okay, last one here. You had your hand up earlier. You could tell me after. <laughs> That's easy. Yeah. What's interesting is we've had a lot of, you're the first journalist we've had on the stage, but we've had lots of investors, lots of founders, and there is definitely a, a, a strong undertone of build great products, get traction, and the money and the, and the stories will follow, which I think is a really important lesson, because I think a lot of people are used to reading about the funding rounds and the ridiculous traction and, you know, Jet.com to the world or others. Yeah. And it's not necessarily reality, or is it reality after a lot of time in, you know, the, their family's apartment busting their ass until that happened? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think it's so important that it's such an important decision to decide how you're going to finance your company. And if you can do it alone, you will, ha I mean, it's extremely hard, but you will have so many more options for yourself 
there's no better term sheet you can get than owning the entire company. You have total control. You know, I've seen situations where people pick an investor and they end up clashing and it's horrible and dramatic, or they're not able to sell their company because the investor then owns majority and doesn't want them to sell yet, or they've sold their company to just get someone off the cap table, um, and that's not the ideal situation. Um, so I think... It, or like, you know, where you get family and friends involved and then there's dramatic family ties and things like that. So you always want to know who you're raising from, why you need the money. Could you do it by yourself? And if you do have to raise, make it strategic, I would say. Like, make sure that person can help you do something that you can't do by yourself. Cool. Well, how about a big round of applause for Allison? So what she doesn't know and what you guys haven't seen before is that we've teamed up with the uh, mayor's office and are giving Allison the first Certificate of Mayoral Recognition and Excellence in Innovation wow. from awesome. the mayor and us with our official seal. Thank you very much. Yeah. That's, That's for you. Yeah. All right. You can go back to your seat and hang up for just a few more minutes. One more round of applause for Allison. Thank you very much. Almost done, but we're going to vote on the startup, give away that trophy, and uh, soon head to wherever I told you we were going. Um, so, come on. Damn technology. It's the worst. Oh, no. Uh, oh, that's terrible. My whole Wi-Fi connection timed out. Well, we're not going to do that, apparently. So, that sucks. That's all right. It'll take too long. Um, who? So we have this trophy over here. Has been rebranded from a 1984. Uh, there's a woman named Heather who used to come to this event. She's since moved to Florida. She donated this trophy from her childhood, and so it's now been rebranded to the NJ Tech Meetup Audience Choice Award, which normally we have a very fancy tool to vote on, but we're going to go old school tonight. So who thinks by uh, raising your hand that uh, who's our first company tonight? Um, Oh, rep startups should win this award. You can at least raise your own hands. <laughs> All right. Sorry to make it so public and slightly humiliating. Who thinks that uh, Sport On should win the, uh, the award? All right. And who thinks that uh, Preline? I believe we have a winner in Preline. Congratulations. Um, you didn't have to call in. If you are interested in presenting your startup, where's Laura? Somewhere in here. Here. First, go there, njtech.me slash apply, fill out that form, and then follow up with Laura or she'll follow up with you to uh, make your way on this list. If you have a corporation and you'd like to run internal speaker series or trainings or things like this, let me know. I started a company to do exactly that called Rocket Fuel. I'd be happy to help you out. If uh, you can make the next event, it's August 12th with Gary Vaynerchuk. Um, who's a very strong social media personality who you may know, an investor in lots of companies you probably have heard of. It's almost sold out. Uh, and that's about it. Thank you so much for everybody for coming and a lot of people who make this happen. And hopefully I'll see you guys for a drink at the Ainsworth. We hope you enjoyed the episode today. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss out on our future episodes. From the team at New Jersey Tech Meetup, we hope you're having a great day and we look forward to spending more time with you in the future. 